Right, we're going to do a little shift around and um, Joe's going to move out and I'm going to move in and I'm going to um, be sharing uh, the next part of our Jonah uh, talk with you. And Chris has my slides over there in uh, Slideland where Chris uh, lives uh, behind the scenes doing all the tech. And so hopefully we're all good to go. Um, we have been doing a series, as you know, called Jonah, the Offensive compassion of God and we have reached part three of the series we're working through the Old Testament book of Jonah and so just a very quick recap again if this were Netflix there'd be like a zoom the story so far um, I haven't got a dramatic film but I'm just gonna have to tell you in chapter one we discovered that Jonah was called by God to go to Nineveh to tell them that there were going to be consequences of the violence and the evil that are going on there. Um, God wanted to send a message to the people of Nineveh, but instead of fulfilling the call that was that, that God asked him to, Jonah went in the opposite direction. He boarded a ship to Tarshish and set sail into a great storm. Uh, feel fearful for their lives and not getting any response from their pagan gods, the sailors confronted Jonah and eventually worked out that he was running away from God. And so reluctantly at his request, they threw him overboard. They're immediately saved, both physically as the storm disappears and spiritually as they turn to God and worship him. Chapter two, which Paul covered last week, then describes what happens to Jonah next. He's in the sea and he's expecting to die when God sends a big fish to swallow Jonah up. And during the three nights and days that Jonah spends in this creature's belly, he cries out to God. From the depths of his despair when things are really bad and he's close to death, he remembers that he can call out to God and he prays for help. And as Paul encouraged us last week, when we feel we're in distress or despair or danger, when it feels like things are really bad and uh, or we're, we're close to death ourselves, we, like Jonah, can call out to God that he will listen and will hear our prayer and save us. In our life group this week, I heard a fantastic real life story of somebody who had a sort of close to death experience. And I'm hoping, he doesn't know this yet, but I'm hoping that I'm going to film uh, that guy talking about it and play it to you in a couple of weeks time because it's uh, really, really stunning. Anyway, some of us, some of us can be really stubborn sometimes, can't we? And it's not until we get right to the end of our own resources, right when we realise that there's just nothing that we can humanly do to get out of the situation that we that you know that we we that we run out of ideas it's sometimes for for some of us it's only then that we call out to god and it does take a degree of humility to admit that we're we're in the wrong and that we need help and that we've made mistakes and that's what happened to Jonah. And so right at the end of Jonah 2, we read that God in his mercy and his compassion heard Jonah's prayer and commanded the fish to vomit Jonah onto dry land, which kind of almost comes across as a comedy moment, doesn't it? It's certainly light relief in the storytelling. And it conjures up all sorts of images, some of which I found on Google, which you can see uh, here. And so um, today... We're picking up the story straight after what happens when the fish vomits Jonah up and we're going straight to chapter three of the book of Jonah. And I'm going to read through chapter three and the, the, words are going to, the, the words of the book are going to come up as well on slides. So it says, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give to you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city and it took three days to go through it. And Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city and proclaiming 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed and all of them from the greatest to the least put on sackcloth. 
When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. And when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction that he had threatened. I want us to reflect on this chapter and I want us to reflect on three ideas that come out and I think that mean can mean a lot to us this morning. The first one is called second chances. We've talked about that before in this story, but it's so prevalent here. The second one is called change is possible. And the third one is called we don't get what we deserve. And so let's look at second chances first. In this story, God is giving Jonah a second chance to do what he initially had asked him to do, to go to Nineveh and give them the message. Despite everything that Jonah had done, God has not given up on him. He turns his back on God, he ran away, he put the sailors' lives in danger. His own life was in grave danger and even despite his eloquent prayers in the belly of the fish, did you notice in chapter 2 that Jonah never actually acknowledges his own mistakes or his own shortcomings? And yet, crying out to God in his distress, close to death, God saves him and gives him another chance to fulfil the call on his life. And that tells us something about the nature of God. He's gracious and compassionate. He's patient and kind. He never gives up. It's like, it reminds me of the story that Jesus told of the prodigal son, where God is like the patient father, watching and waiting for the return of the son who has already dishonoured the family, blown in his inheritance, hit rock bottom. He's had to humble himself and come home. And the father is ready and waiting. It says he sits out there waiting, watching. This is the God of the second chance and the third chance and the fourth chance. And that's true for you and I just as much as it is for Jonah or for the prodigal son. We might have blown it. We might have lost the plot. We might have given up our faith, made some bad decisions, totally screwed up a relationship, lost a business, damaged our reputation, alienated and hurt the people that we love somehow just drifted away from God. Whatever we've done, we've done. God has not given up on us. I can imagine God just saying this, try again, son. I made you for a reason. I love you. You're unique. I am making you new. My presence is changing you from the inside out. Now go and share that with the others. I have a purpose for your life. I don't have a slide of it, but I've just finished reading a brilliant book by a man called Michael Emmett. And the book is called Sins of Fathers. And I highly recommend it. It's been out a few months. It's on Amazon and various places. Uh, Michael Emmett grew up as the son of a London gangster. His dad was mates with all the sort of well-known criminals um, in London in the 60s and the 70s, the craze and various other things. And so Michael probably slightly inevitably fell into a life of crime, getting deeper and deeper and deeper in 
until he was arrested for being part of a huge drug smuggling outfit. And in Exeter Prison, he talks about how he met God, how a team from Holy Trinity Brompton came to do a service in the prison, in the chapel, the chapel there, and how Michael met with the Holy Spirit and gave his life to God. He experienced incredible uh, touch of God. He got involved in Prison Alpha. And then later, when he got out of prison, he continued his involvement uh, in Alpha in prisons. But, you know, even then, he still had a long way to go in his story. He was very much in need of another chance and another chance. He had lots of sorting out to do in his life. And he talks about this so eloquently in the book, relationships to untangle, businesses to straighten out. And in the midst of it all, there's just this beautiful sense of God leading and guiding him gradually, gently, and sometimes very painfully to bring healing and restoration. And through it all, he continued to be part of this prison alpha team, seeing alpha in prisons expand and expand to go and have such an incredible impact on prisoners right across the UK and even across the world, actually. And so all of the time that he was sorting himself out, he was also fulfilling the call that God seemed to have put on him to help others to find God as well, when in their hour of need, when they needed rescuing. And I just thought it was interesting uh, that working through things for ourselves, getting things straight in our life, becoming uh, closer and closer to God and becoming sort of better disciples of Jesus as we are, doesn't disqualify us to be used by God to help others. In fact, I think it's the healthy way to go. Even if, you know, even if we feel like we've got a long way to go in our own walk with God, God wants to use us to help others and to help others connect with him. And that's the story of Jonah. And today, if you feel like you've lost sight of your purpose or what God is asking you to do, then this is a good day to come back to God again because he's longing to give each of us the second chance the third chance, the fourth chance. And this time after being saved from his watery grave, as we've read, Jonah actually goes and carries his purpose out. It says he walks into Nineveh and proclaims his message. And it's quite a short message. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. He doesn't mince his words. He doesn't elaborate. He doesn't even mention the name of God. But Jonah's words have a dramatic effect. It's not clear exactly what this message is implying. I'm going to just dig in a little bit here. There's a key word. The word overthrown is the, the Hebrew word hapak. And it has a number of meanings. It can be translated in different ways. And two in particular. So one meaning is that, the, that it implies overthrown or overturned. Implying the destruction of the city. 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. There's another story in the Old Testament about a city. A city called Sodom and Gomorrah. Where God does indeed destroy the city. Having given them plenty of chances to turn around. And they just don't change. That episode is referred to throughout the Old Testament. And it uses this same word. It says the Lord for example in Genesis 19. Rained on Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone of fire. And he overthrew the cities and the same it refers to it in Amos. But that word hapak can also mean something different. It can mean more of a simple turning around, a simple change or transformation. For example, in Deuteronomy 23, the Lord God would listen, would not listen to Balaam, Balaam, but he changed the curse into a blessing for you. Really well known Psalm, Psalm 30, you changed or turned my wailing into dancing. You removed my sackcloth and clothe me with joy. And so this same word can mean a number of different things. And it's not exactly clear which message God was sending to the people of Nineveh. It looks like Jonah was announcing 
40 days and the city will be destroyed. That God was threatening the sort of fire and brimstone that we've already read about. Now we already know from Jonah from chapter 1 that God didn't like what was going on in Nineveh. He was intent on confronting the evil that was there. And yet what actually occurs in the end of this story is not the destruction of the city, but a transformation of its people. So maybe Jonah's message means 40 days and Nineveh will be changed. Was God making a definitive declaration or was he just suggesting that this promise was conditional and that if people were to repent of their ways, then then that could change God's mind? And if you read ahead to chapter four, we're going to cover this next week, you'll see that Jonah certainly thought that it was a possibility that God would not follow through on his threat to destroy the city. I think Jonah's body language suggests that if it was down to him, he would be very happy for God to destroy the city. I mean, he preached a minimal message. There were just five words in Hebrew. He didn't even mention God's name and he only bothered to walk one day into a city that's three days walk across. Now, I might be wrong about this, but it feels to me that while Jonah did carry out his appointed task, he seemed to do it in a pretty half-hearted way. We were chatting about this on a prayer call earlier and um, a couple of people referred to Jonah as the original grumpy old man, which I think is a great, a great, um, a great suggestion. You know, I might be reading something into the text that isn't here, but it certainly feels a bit passive aggressive to me. There's no compassion. There's no emotion. There's no explanation and there's no offer to intercede. You know, in other accounts in the Old Testament where a prophet was tasked to go and confront evil in God's name, the prophet then actually prays to God on behalf of the people. He says, Lord, I call out to you, please don't do this. Think of Moses and the golden calf. I'll come back to that story in a moment. Jonah doesn't even do that. Once again, in this story, we see Jonah's motives called into question. The author is wanting us to consider that Jonah doesn't seem to be acting in the way that a prophet should, whilst at the same time, The author is not exactly condemning Jonah for his poor judgment, at least not yet anyway. So let's compare Jonah's half-hearted delivery of this five-word sermon with the way that the Ninevites respond. It reminds me of um, what happens in uh, chapter one with the sailors. You know, Jonah's sort of doing the minimal and the sailors are kind of responding effusively, turning to God. And it says even before the word reached the king, it says that the people of Nineveh had believed in God and they called for a fast and they put on sackcloth. And sackcloth symbolises mourning. It symbolises death. It says the king removed his robe and also covered himself in sackcloth and sat in the ashes. That basically means he's, he's, he's dying. He's put himself, it's like a funeral march. He issues a decree Right across the city, he says, no food, no water for people or animals. Everyone dressed in sackcloth. And he gives orders, call out, a might- call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that's in his hands. Guys, city of people in Nineveh, we need to change. And even if Jonah secretly suspected that God might not carry out his threat of destruction, the king wasn't certain. If you read in verse 9 there, it says, Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Same language as in uh, in chapter 1 as well. I'm going to do a little bit more. I'm going to do another bonus video uh, later on today where I'll pick up some digging deeper into some of the language there. But it's very reminiscent of chapter 1. There are a lot of ties and links between chapter 1 and chapter 3.
So these guys in Nineveh paid attention to Jonah's message big time. They really meant business when it came to their repentance. This wasn't just a sort of sullen, sarcastic, sorry. You know, as our kids were growing up, we tried to teach them that about when, when you realize that you've hurt someone, often just the act of simply saying sorry isn't enough. It's a good start, but it doesn't mean very much if it's forced or mechanical. It's only when you start to acknowledge the pain that you've caused and do something to engage with the other person on an emotional level that trust can start to grow in the relationship again. And that's what's going on here. The Ninevites are engaging with God on an emotional level. They're getting in touch with the pain that they have caused and they are making changes to their lifestyle. That call from the king is to turn from their evil ways, literally turn around, repent, turn back, return. That's the word. And that's what the word repentance means. It doesn't mean just paying lip service, saying the right thing. It means action. If we want to stop sinning, we need to make a plan to stop sinning. We don't just say sorry and hope it doesn't happen again. It means not taking the first step. It means walking in the other direction, acting in the opposite spirit, replacing the pain. For me, for example, when I get in, when my attitude is wrong and I get into conflict with my family, it isn't enough just to say, I'm sorry, I won't do it again. I need to actively turn from it. The best way that I've found to do this is to stop and to pray, to deliberately take time to be with God. I find that when I'm actively pursuing him and his agenda, when I'm moving towards him, then I'm just a nicer person to be around. I'm much less likely to be mean or grumpy or shouty. I'm moving away from sin and in this story the people of Nineveh go all in to show God that they're sorry that they were prepared to turn from their evil ways <laughs> always makes me laugh but whenever we go shopping uh, or to the cinema in Eastleigh which we haven't done for quite a while now um, there's a car park there and whenever I pay for my ticket the ticket machine has this little message on it which always makes me smile it's a sort of inspirational message it says change is possible I always feel like adding some extra words a bit like this just to clarify the message with God change is possible and that's a key message in Jonah and it's a key message of the Bible and it's a key message that each of us carries around with us and what if those around us who are what if there are people around us who are ready to respond to the good news of Jesus just like the sailors were in chapter one and the Ninevites are in chapter 3. What if there are people who are just waiting to hear the gospel for themselves, waiting for someone to come and tell them there's a different way of living, that there's a God who cares for them and wants to know them and can help them and can rescue them and can save them? What if there are people who are just ready to respond? One of the things I take out of this story of Jonah is to just pray for the opportunities. If we are Jonah in this story, then where is our Nineveh? Who are the people that God is challenging us or prompting us or calling us to go to? Where is the Holy Spirit directing us? Where is the Father already working in hearts and souls and minds? And how can we go and fulfil the call on our lives to help and to see people find God? In Michael Emmett's case, it was back to prison, not, you know, and, and with Alpha. What is it with us? Where is our Nineveh? Even now, why don't we just take a moment to ask God, 
Where is the place that you're calling me to, to go and share your good news? Show us, Lord. Show us, Holy Spirit, right now where it is that you would have us go. If you're anything like me, a good clue is it's a place you don't fancy doing it. <laughs> Maybe. Maybe it's somewhere that makes you feel a bit scared. Holy Spirit, show us, we pray. And lastly, let's look at how God responds to the Ninevites' response. I saw this on the internet when I was looking. I thought it was too good to not to share. Um, thank, with, past, with, with thanks to Pastor Sean Piper, whoever he is. It says, Jonah presents, Nineveh repents, and God relents. Chapter 3, verse 10. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them. And he did not do it. Which is maybe surprising to some. But it does raise a question, at least in Jonah's mind, which we'll come to next week, but also in my mind. Which is that this story seems to be suggesting that the God of the universe, God who is faithful, consistent and unchanging, is changing his mind about the Ninevites. Can God change his mind? The Bible tells us in a lot of places that God doesn't change. Here, for example, are three very well-known verses. Malachi 3.6, I, the Lord, do not change. James 1.17, every, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. And Hebrews 13.8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today and forever. It's a well-known common fact that God is unchanging and yet here he is apparently changing his mind. This isn't the only time that this happens either. And there's a little bit of a clue in the, um, in the language used here because when, when the humans repent, when Nineveh repent from evil, then the Hebrew word they use there is, is shuv and it literally means to turn around. The word just means, as we've described back in verse 8, just to turn around and to change. But when God repents for bringing evil on people, the author uses a different word, and it's the word nicham, which carries a lot more emotional meaning. It means to be sorry, to console oneself, to repent, to regret, to comfort, to be comforted, or to relent, as we've heard in the translation we're using. And whenever the Bible uses this word about God, it's in the context of him changing his mind, having planned to bring about his judgment against evil. So back in Exodus, when the Israelites had rebelled from God, while Moses was up the mountain, they made a golden calf to worship instead. And God got really mad and threatened judgment against them all. And it was when Moses pleaded with God on their behalf. In Exodus 32, 14, you can see it there. It says, after Moses pleaded with him, it says the Lord relented or changed his mind about the harm which he said he would do to his people. Some translations say relented, some say change his mind. There are other examples as well, and that's what's going on here in Jonah, except when God changes his mind, it's not about his own people, the Israelites. In the case of Jonah, it's the enemies, the Ninevites, who are saved. 120,000 people in this city are saved, even though they committed atrocious acts, violence and evil that they were known for. But because they repented, God saved them. Because they responded to his word, because they called out to him, 
and turn their behaviour around. God changed his mind. And there's a theologian called Wayne Grudem that I've quoted before, and he describes this attribute of God's character like this. He said, God is unchanging in his being, his perfections, his purposes and his promises. And yet God does act and feel emotions and he acts and feels differently in response to different situations. Sorry. Excuse us. Can you just turn it off? Thank you. Joe is watching the. Um, she's obviously texting people and on her phone now. She, she's trying to watch the live stream. Just turn it off, darling. <laughs> you don't have to leave the room. Just turn your phone off. Where was I? God's being doesn't change. The nature of who he is doesn't change. God's character doesn't change. What he's like doesn't change. His purposes don't change. The things he wants to do don't change. His promises don't change. He is faithful. But sometimes the way that God responds to situations and people does change. And the great news is that that is amazing and it should make us grateful. Because, as I said, the last part of this is that we don't get what we deserve. Back in the 90s, there was a groundbreaking Christian rap group called the Worldwide Message Tribe. And this is one of their uh, songs and one of their albums. And it's got quite a, a striking cover. And I remember the song, I Won't Try and Do It For You, it was basically a rap. We don't get what we deserve. That kind of thing. <clears throat> Excuse me. I am so grateful that God does not treat me in the way that I actually deserve. And that's the same for all of us. You might think, well, I'm a pretty decent person. I haven't murdered anyone. I'm not part of a violent and oppressive regime, you know, like all of these people in Nineveh. The truth is, when, we, when it comes to God's standards, we have all failed one way or another. Paul tells us in Romans that all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory, God's standards. None of us match up to that ideal of perfection. All of us need this second chance. And we've got to be careful of detaching from Bible characters, thinking, oh, these guys are so long ago and in such a different culture to us that we can't really relate to them. You know, it's hard to relate to Jonah, you know, a story about a man who spends three days in a fish or a city known for its violence and evil deeds. But I can think of plenty of examples of times when I know that I've messed up, when I know that I've not treated people with the kindness and grace that I should have done, when I've tried to run away from what I know or what I should do. Or run away from God. The great news is God's kindness and his love and his forgiveness is available to me and to you and to all of us. And all of us, if we need that, it's available now, right here, right now. We don't deserve it, but it's available. And we're going to come in a few moments to communion. And many of us have been on the receiving end of God's mercy at some point in our lives. That's why we take communion to remember how Jesus died for us on the cross so he could forgive our sins and give us the hope and the promise of new life. Jesus' death and his resurrection has loads of echoes in the Jonah story. We'll talk about those next week as well. And when we celebrate communion, we remember what Jesus did. How like Jonah, he went down to death and then came back three days later and how it is that because of that we can be saved and rescued and forgiven and not just us because there are plenty of people around us who also need that second chance and so the fact that God is in the business of forgiveness and new starts should also make us prayerful 
we have an opportunity to see things change in the communities around us. God is moving in the lives of the people who live and work near to us. And we can play a part in seeing transformation happen for them. Often by the things we do and say, and always by the way that we pray. Prayer changes things, and when we pray, we make a difference. There is power as we agree together and remind God of his unchanging purposes, his character and his nature. And as we invite him to get involved. Even now, why don't we just pray or bring before God neighbours, friends, colleagues, family. Maybe you know somebody who needs to be rescued, who needs the intervention of God. I'm just going to pray and then I'd love you to just insert the name of a person or people and just pray before, bring them before God yourself. Lord, you seek and you save the lost. You love in so many unchanging ways. You can intervene in situations and lives and you want to rescue people. Lord, your love is amazing. No person or situation is too far away from you. Nothing is too challenging for you. Lord, some of us need to be rescued right now. Maybe it's ourselves. We open ourselves up to you again. We just say yes. And many of us know people who need to know rescue and salvation today. Let's just think of those people and again, whisper their names or in our heads and our hearts, whisper the names of people who we know who need to know the love of God right now. Who need that second, third, fourth chance. Lord, we bring these names before you. We bring these people before you. Lord, we know that you're in the business of second chances. You brought second chance for Jonah, second chance for the people in Nineveh, second chance for me, and a second chance for the people around me. Thank you, Lord. Thank you that this is what you do. And just to close, before we go into communion, I want to remind you or perhaps teach you for the first time if you haven't heard this, a very simple prayer tool that helps us in the act of repentance. This is a very simple tool called the five R's. And I've taught this before and I've used it a number of times, but I find it so helpful to deal with sin and its effects and to get right with God. I'm just going to very briefly talk through the five steps and then I'm going to lead us as we pray through them. And then we're going to go into communion, which Neil and Jenny are going to be leading for us today. So the first R is recognise. We have to humbly accept and take full responsibility for our own sin. We're not about blaming other people or our parents or society or the devil. We, we bravely learn to call our sin by its own name. Not, you know, we don't say, oh, I'm frustrated if we were angry. We say, I'm angry. You know, if it's fear, then we're not just a little bit worried. We're fearful. Watch out for pride when we do this. Watch out for fear. It's really important just to be really straight with God. This is what I've done. And then the second R is to repent, as we've already talked about. This is where we turn back to God, where we break the enemy's hold on us. It also includes forgiving injustices against us. That's not always easy to do, but we turn from our stuff. We say, I don't want that anymore. And the third R is to receive receive the forgiveness of God, receive the empowering of his spirit, receive his love. 
And the fourth R is to rebuke. You know, the Bible clearly teaches us that the enemy is out to get us. And there's always a bit where we feel guilty and he will kind of put the needle in. And so once the legal bit has been done and we've made our transactions, then we can simply exercise the authority that we've been given to say, no thanks, you're not welcome here anymore. And lastly, replace. You know, it's no good repenting if we don't put something into the gap. It's like taking your car to be mended and they take out the old bit and they don't put the new bit in. So once an area of our life has been brought under the Lordship of Jesus, we need to replace our old patterns of thinking. Sometimes a really good question to ask is, what is God bringing me instead? What are you giving me instead? <laughs> and then I've cheekily sneaked in number six, R, which is rejoice. Guys, I'm gonna, I'm gonna lead us to a simple prayer. I'm gonna take these five R's. And so make this an, make this an opportunity to come before the Lord for yourself. It might be something big, it might be something small. Don't try and manufacture sins to repent of, but we'll just be quiet. And if the Lord brings something to mind, then just recognise it and let's go through. So I'm going to lead us in a short time just to pray through the five R's. Okay. And the first one is to recognise. So Holy Spirit, thank you that you're here with us. And thank you that this is a day of second chances. And thank you that wherever we are, we have the opportunity to turn around and come back to you. And so Holy Spirit, just prompt us now. Show us if there's anything that you need us to repent of this morning, just to recognise. So if there are things in your own heart, if you're aware of things that you've done wrong, if the Lord is making you aware, then just tell him what that is. Just own it. It doesn't have to be grand. don't have to use a lot of words. I recognise the sin of dot, dot, dot. This is what I did. And then the next part of the prayer is, and Lord, I repent of this. I turn from, I don't want that anymore. I go a different way. If you're able to, and you're on your own, or, you know, it's a good thing to speak these words out loud. You don't have to, though. So I recognise my sin, I repent of my sin, and then I receive your love and your forgiveness, God. It's a really good thing to say it out loud. I receive the forgiveness of God. There's a verse in the Bible that says, His anger only lasts for a moment, but his kindness lasts for a lifetime. I always imagine him smiling on me. And then because all that's done, you can say, and I rebuke the devil. I rebuke the enemy. You've got no power over me. I'm a child of the king. I'm saved. I'm healed. I'm forgiven. And there's no need for guilt or shame. And lastly, we're going to replace it. Lord, what do you give me instead? And you might already know. I replace that sin with the life of God, with the truth of your word, with whatever the Lord's giving you. Lord, thank you that we don't have to live in our old patterns, that we are gradually being renewed, that we are changing, 
and that we are coming to you. Thank you that the more of the Holy Spirit that we have in our lives, the more prompted we are to bring stuff back to you. Thank you that you're the God of the second chance and that you love us so much that your love and your compassion and your mercy far outweighs anything else. Thank you for the peace that comes from knowing we're in a good place with you. Lord, thank you for this encounter this morning as we put things right. And Lord, be with us as we just come, as we close our service by celebrating communion again, remembering what you did on the cross, remembering, Jesus, that you died for our sins. Thank you that you're with us. Thank you for this story in Jonah and all that we can learn from that. Now lead us, Holy Spirit, as we come to communion. Amen.